Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. If the last three years taught us one political truth, it's that developing policy is an exercise in picking winners and losers. Ask any parent, and they'll likely say that there's been no one group more consistently picked to lose than children. From shortages of children's medication and infant formula, to shuttered schools and cancelled surgeries at children's hospitals, we've asked a lot of our kids and their parents, what are the political implications, and how are parents treated as a constituency? I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Jen Gerson, a freelance writer and co-founder of The Line, a Canadian commentary website based on Substack, and Melanie Parody, the president of Texture Communications and veteran conservative campaigner, who most recently served as director of communications to Aaron O'Toole. Like me, Jen and Melanie have young children, and in between the kvetching, venting, and wild gesturing, we found time to take a look at how parents are doing and what it means for the political landscape. This is Political Traction. So, Jen, Melanie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You, you, you know, you lucked out. You got me in the 30 seconds that I've recovered from one illness, and then we're heading into the next. That's great. Well, it's all about hitting that sweet spot uh, mm-hmm. and making sure that, uh, that, that that we can hit you when uh, you, uh, you're you not phlegmy or uh, Oh, I'm or phlegmy. Puking. Great. I'm warning you. I'm phlegmy. <laughs> awesome. But I'm not puking. So there you go. Fantastic. Um, Melody, I, w- I want to start with you because, I mean, I'm a parent. I have been following this in my own, you know, the part of my brain that just kind of complains as a parent to myself, but I hadn't really been following this as a political issue until you wrote about the children's uh, acetaminophen uh, shortage. And I'm in, interested in Jen Substack in, on the in the yeah. line. On the that's line. Where, that's, that's right. The line that really caught. I had written about it previously for the Toronto Sun, um, basically saying that politicians need to start paying attention and doing something about this. But I think it was kind of a bit. It was a bit too early in the crisis. <laughs> yeah. Had not quite hit you know uh, maximum eyeballs at that point in time. Um, and when we when we did the piece with the line, um, it was I think the timing was exactly right when everyone's parent chat groups were talking about Tylenol um, and people really, you know, as soon as they saw it, they resonated with them really powerfully. As a, as a political communicator by trade, what was it like seeing an issue? You were at the front end of that issue going from complete silence to being raised by opposition and then finally being addressed by, by the government. Um, well, I mean, validating, I guess. I think any stakeholder group or individual who um, sees their the issue that they're trying to raise attention to gain the platform of the House of Commons um, is is super validating. And, it, and it's especially at a time when our politics has, I th- unfortunately, like lost sight of everyday issues especially for parents of, and parents of young children in particular, I feel like it's a segment of the population that politicians don't pay nearly enough attention to, even if they are them. <laughs> um, and thankfully there were a couple of people who had been advocating for this. Um, Layla Goodridge is a good example. She's an Alberta MP. She's an, a new mom. She, her son is about the same age as my son. Um, and she'd been advocating for this internally within the, within the conservative caucus. Um, and it finally just, you know, started to, to gain some traction. I think a lot of MPs were hearing about this issue from, from their constituents and they decided to, uh, to, to bring it forward. It was 
um, both as questions and during question period. Um, we've seen some videos from a couple politicians about it, which has been which has been great. Um, and then you know, then they start getting talking points, and then you start getting national media coverage about it. And then there there have been there since been all sorts of of stories about it. Um, but I think that what what changed between the the piece that I wrote um, earlier for for the Toronto Sun and the piece for the line is I actually went to the United States to get it. It was like that level of desperation mm. where you can't get this stuff anywhere now <laughs> and I had to go to America. And there's something deeply embedded in the Canadian psyche about having to go to America for something, whether it's an MRI mm. or a bottle of Tylenol, like there's something about that that's just like it causes us to twitch. Um, and I think that was uh, sort of the trigger for both regular Canadians who were dealing with this issue, but also politicians to realize, oh, this is actually a big deal. Yeah, we, we've yeah. activated the uh, the Trader Joe's uh, extremists in Canada now. Uh, this is funny because, of course, my, my husband travels to the United States quite frequently for work. And every time he comes back through like Atlanta or wherever, he stops off at the at the um, uh, the Hudson's whatever, uh, you know, little store in the airport and is now stocking up on Tylenol, stuffs it in his carry on and brings it home. And every time the lady at the airport just looking at him like what are you like what is this random weirdo doing buying like six things of tylenol right like it's the weirdest thing to them and he's like we just can't get it back home and then of course the poor lady's like oh poor creature you must live in like sub-saharan africa or something like no no we live in we live in calgary um so i mean this is really interesting because i find that as a as a, as a parent with young children right off the bat, that is a very isolating experience. When you have young kids, no one prepares you for the level of isolation that you go through for those first couple of years. Like all of a sudden, all of your friend networks kind of disappear. You're, especially you're, especially over the past past three years. Oh, especially over the last three years with COVID, right? Because I mean, you can't like, you know, your kids, chances are you weren't able to put them into the ordinary mommy group stuff. The mommy group stuff disappeared. Um, uh, uh, so it's been a very, very isolating experience for kids, for parents with young kids. And also your ordinary connections with your friends and your community and your social networks collapse. And I mean, that's just an ordinary part of being a parent. Um, and then of course you're isolated from your, from your work crew. So, you know, a lot of us have become more and more reliant on online mommy groups or online groups, or we've been incredibly, um, isolated. And as a result, um, Bluntly, I really think that unless you have kids right now who are of a certain age, most of the population is just totally unaware of how bad it is. Like they're just, they just, they have, they literally have no clue, firstly, of how bad the situation is for something as simple as children's Tylenol, how hard it is to get. And they also have no clue about how sick we've been. And I mean, every single parent I know with young kids has been relentlessly sick. I mean, we were talking a little bit about that before the podcast began. I'm on my third round of antibiotics. I've had vicious stomach flus. I've had two rounds of strep. I've had pneumonia. I've had like, it's, it's been, I have been um, sick with a low level illness of some kind or another. And sometimes not even a little illness nonstop since the end of September, my kids, my poor daughter, who's three, of course, has had no immune system as a result of COVID gets put in um, preschool. She's been out of preschool more than she's been in preschool because she's had an endless succession of respiratory illnesses. Of course, nothing big enough to hospitalize her, but absolutely enough to drive the entire household to a halt, make working impossible, and ensure that we can't get back to anything resembling a normal life. And in our household, and I know I'm not the only one, we're starting to think like, 
shit, do we just need to pull the kids out of school a week or two before Christmas? Because if we're going to have anything resembling a happy Christmas environment, we can't be sick like this. And I know I'm not the only one having that conversation. So the, like our entire lives have ground to an absolute halt. And this isn't normal. Like this is not a normal level of illness that's happening. Like this is way worse than any other previous year I've seen. My six-year-old has been relatively fine. Um, this is way beyond standard baseline as any any parent or any hospital can tell you. And it has been debilitating. It's been absolutely debilitating for parents with with young kids. And bluntly, no one really seems to care outside of that peer group, right? Like nobody outside the political in this political sphere seems to be conscious of this, that this is happening, nor do they seem to really give a shit. And as a result, I think that when Melanie's piece about the Tylenol finally came out, it was like, oh God, like it was almost like tapping a vein of just probably millions of young parents who were all going through the same thing. And all of a sudden we felt seen, you know, like we felt like someone finally was like paying attention to us. Um, but uh, it's it's a very isolating experience to be part of that demographic right now. And you really do feel like politicians and society at large aren't really paying that much attention to just how bad it is for you right now. It, it's amazing how many solitudes we have in this country. Like the, mm-hmm. as you were describing this, I was thinking about, yeah, OK, I've had the same frustrating hair pulling conversations with my child free friends. And I've had the exact same conversation about housing with my boomer parents. And yeah. Yeah. You know, and and probably had the same type of conversations with uh, with other people about inflation at mm-hmm. uh, you know at at a, uh, earlier on this year, and in in all three situations, it, it there's always somebody who who points out, man, nobody's talking about this until somebody's talking about it, and then it's like manna from heaven when yeah uh, when you know people said in the um, uh, uh, CPC leadership race that that. Why is uh, Pierre the only person talking about inflation? Like, why have I heard more about inflation from Pierre than I have from from uh, Minister Freeland, uh, the finance minister, on this? Uh, and same thing, same thing with housing. Um, we just, as a either as a society or as a as a political class, are not do we just not have our fingers on the pulse, or do leaders just not have their fingers on the pulse to be able to talk about these things that are actually I just... harmful for people? Look, I mean, what's interesting to me is, so I occasionally give uh, talks to school public policy classes, right? Like, which is really fun for me. So I go into front of the classes and I say, look, the first thing that all of the people in this class have to understand is that you are not normal. The fact that you are in this room in a public policy class means that in terms of your tastes, your intellect, your peer group, your everything makes you a, a radical outlier to the general population. And if you are going to address any kind of public policy issues, you have to go into that with that, you know, bone deep understanding that you are not normal. Your interests are not normal. Um, and you have to really try and rectify that and, and and deal with it. And I think the same is true for generally our political class. Our political class, um, comparatively, I don't believe that they have young children. Some of them do, they, but the majority of them don't, don't. The number of staffers who don't have kids in part number because- of staffers who don't have kids in yeah. class. I mean, you, you know, the sort of people who self-select into politics and the political class are not representative of the general you population. You have to be able to means... uproot your life, work for yeah. peanuts, work yeah. late hours. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't work for a family. That does not work for a family, right? And like most families also bluntly can't afford to live in downtown Ottawa or downtown Toronto. Most people are living in either the suburbs or they're living in other 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 parts of the country. So like your your experience of this country and your experience of life is just radically disconnected from where the political class is. Now that that's not the political class's fault. That's just a, a consequence of the reality of what it is to be in that class. 
But you do kind of get the sense a lot of the time that that political class doesn't make the effort to try to be self-aware enough to get that. Um, I mean, I could go and ramble about some of the stuff that I've heard, for example, Christia Freeland say, where I'm just like, you're, you, I understand what you're saying. You're so smart. You're right. But the way you're communicating this is so just painfully tone deaf to the average person. And you just don't even see it. You don't even, you're not even aware of it. And that is, that's, that's a really hard thing. And I think it is stoking a lot of discontent and alienation and anger from ordinary people. Yeah. There, there, there are three cities in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, and Queens yeah. University. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and believe me, none of them have been sick for the last three months straight. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. The shortage now seems to be hitting in the U.S. I was doing a bit of a bit of research and I saw the, the, just looking for Canadian articles. And the first ones that came up were like a Washington Post article about how we're starting. They're starting to see uh, Tylenol shortages. Did we ever get a straight answer on what's causing this this shortage? So there there's a, a post media podcast down to business that actually is a um, their latest out this week. Um, it was an interview with Mina Tadras, who's a, a professor of pharmacy, and he's a pharmacist, um, but he's a professor at the University of, Tr of Toronto, and he gives a really great, a very balanced and a nonpartisan <laughs> explanation of all the different factors that um, kind of perfect storm uh, um, compounded upon each other to create the, the situation that we've been in for the past couple of months. So it did start with some sort of supply chain issue in the spring, and then you have this confluence of like super viruses and and then it's out of the stores and then parents like I, I hate when we blame parents for for hoarding. I don't think that's the situation, but I do think that it's no. very natural that when you 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 want to have that backup bottle and when you don't see it on the shelves that you're going to go around and, and buy it. Right. So there's a big spike in demand. Um, also, can I just say like hoarding Tylenol makes no freaking sense. <laughs> like you don't you don't go through eight bottles of Tylenol. You go through like maybe one or two a season. So the idea that this was all the fault of like parents hoarding Tylenol is just insane to me. I well, love how I, that I, became I, an actual Health Canada message though. Yeah. yeah. Like, fuck you. Yeah. But yes. I, I, I did have that that moment at 1030 at a shopper standing in the aisle and there were three, there were three bottles. And I want our, I want our listeners to know that I only bought one, but I did have like more like 90 seconds of of ethical ethical dilemma with the with the, the trolley problem um and uh yeah like it, it is tough and i remember you know going back to hoarding like at the very 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 beginning of the pandemic if i look at some of the crap that is still sitting in my pantry that i bought in uh in end of february 2020 um you know there there, there is something to that but i i agree like it doesn't make sense on a rational level to your no, shopping but they needed, they needed to blame something and i think part yeah. of the messaging that they they also wanted to calm canadians down and get them to stop like worrying about this so that they could buy themselves some time that's my my belief about why they were pushing that that narrative but i don't think it was helpful at all um and it also wasn't particularly honest um i but what's been so fascinating to me is here we are, we're like, we're now eight months into this. Um, and we still don't have a clear explanation about what really started all of this, where the problem in the supply chain is, what countries the supply chain uh, is, is part of, so that we can understand like if that was a factor or not, 
or how we need to diversify where we're purchasing products and, and inputs to products from. Um, and the fact that we still don't know is, is quite concerning to me because it means that if we don't know what went wrong, how are we going to prevent it from happening again? How are we going to create a plan to ensure that this is not, you know, a 2023 issue as well? Um, you know, people are talking about like, should we have some sort of medical stockpile? Like, obviously, there's expiration dates on things, so that's probably not super practical. But there are some things that we could um, strategically be be trying to get manufactured here, like invest in facilities and have them make it here so that we can secure some of it. We saw during COVID that there were there were lots of examples of countries who would just stop exporting things because they wanted to make sure that they had enough for themselves. And if this were to become a, a global shortage, and people kept saying like there were global implications, now we're starting to see it happen in the United States. Um, we're also seeing a North America-wide shortage of antibiotics. But, yeah. but Tylenol for the past eight months was not a global shortage. It was exclusively really to Canada. Um, and also, this is one thing that I also hated because a lot of the partisan people who are trying to get the government out of out of responsibility for any or taking responsibility for any of this were like, well, there's shortages in America too. And it's like, there were spot shortages in some spots of America, but America is such an enormous logistical hub that essentially there was a spot shortage in Portland, Oregon, you know, the, the Walmart down yeah, because in Because a California bus full of Canadians and, showed up and cleared well, the Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? A bus full of, well, there was that, but then also like because America is just so big in, in, of its own mass, it was very easy for, for America to manage those spot shortages. Or if there was a spot shortage of Tylenol in one store, chances are you lived in a city where you could go to another store and still get it. That was dramatically different from what was happening here, where I actually had a friend whose mom lives in Creston, which is a retirement community, and she shipped me two bottles of um, uh, uh, Tylenol from Creston. And she was telling me that the pharmacist down there had people driving all the way down from Edmonton to get Tylenol. Like, that's a 12-hour drive. Like, that is not the situation in America. I'm sorry. Every time my husband's gone to America, he could find ample supplies of children's medicine no problem so i it's just it's it's radically different the other thing i was going to say is i went to go and get my daughter some antibiotics not the other day went to my local pharmacy sorry you can hear my my little one coughing in the background um basic amoxicillin and they were like sorry we're out we can't we can't get her amoxicillin you have to go to a compounding pharmacy like what kind of third world country like is this it's 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 horrifying to not that's have amoxicillin like amoxicillin is a basic basic medication now i can still go to a compounding pharmacy and get this okay so like let's not overreact but that is just like in a g7 nation we don't expect that you can't go to your local pharmacy and pick up amoxicillin like that is not a standard that we are accustomed to in the modern world yeah you know and it's also something that like we're we're in a particular socioeconomic position where we can drive to another pharmacy to get right. it. We can take the extra time to go get it. What does the, you know, the proverbial, we always talk in politics about the single mom and the, like these people who we talk about, who frankly we use for our political messaging purposes, but then don't actually help with anything. What the hell is she doing on, on a bus going pharmacy to pharmacy to try to find something while her kid is sick? Like, we're not it's just it's it's an insane situation well, and and the fact that people haven't like i want to go blockade ottawa about this 
<laughs> well, not, but the other thing too is like, like then you have to like compounding pharmacies, for example, this is actually a really interesting question because compounding pharmacies have actually been on the decline as they've been replaced with sort of just standard, um, uh, uh, sorry, that's my little one. Got to get her antibiotics. She, um, like, like, like compounding pharmacies have been on the decline because of course people don't necessarily need to get specialized treatments compounded. Right. And the farm, most pharmacists for now are, you know, they're counting pills now. Compounding pharmacies, um, have to you have to start really start thinking about whether or not we want to be getting rid of compounding pharmacies because compounding pharmacies have the ability to create medications in a way that ordinary pharmacies don't and that is a skill and a capacity that i really think that we want to be careful about giving up or or, or undermining i think in alberta we actually have way more compounding pharmacies than you do in ontario yes. so it's a really interesting interesting thing you also i remember the, when sorry go ahead i remember when my my my, my youngest had um colic we had to get a special type of anti-acid antacid for infants and they had to compound it for us. They had to make it for us. And it's really, really hard to get this stuff if you do not happen to live near a compounding pharmacy. So in Ontario, and this is one of the differences between jurisdictions, every province is slightly different. Um, the compounding pharmacies, there's like a whole bunch of other rules associated with them here. But what's interesting is I think it's been like six years in Alberta now that pharmacists have been, a, have been allowed to prescribe so like pink eye ointment for example like you can just go into the pharmacy and say like my kid has pink eye and they'll look at your kid and be like yes yes he does here are some drops for, for you you can't do that in ontario you need to go to a doctor and get a prescription you got to go to a clinic it's ridiculous now that's being changed january 1st there's a whole bunch of stuff that the ontario government has has listed that pharmacists are going to be able to pres like prescribe basically and then um the ones that are compounding will be able to make it which it will provide some relief, but like why, why that couldn't get sped up? Like I know there's, you know, all these negotiations with different stakeholder groups, et cetera, no. that probably went into that. And I'm sure that speeding it up, um, it would be complicated, but like, holy crap, like pink eye is one of the, I've learned so much about it in the past couple of months. It's one <laughs> of those things that your kids, like if they get any cough or cold, like the next thing that happens is is they then get pink eye as well. And so it's just, I don't understand why I this is still a problem. over the counter, like antibiotic pink eye medication here. So like I, 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 appreciate, me, I appreciate you just buy that. Should, that. should that have been one of the posters that was in Union Station in Toronto? Like move to right? Alberta, we can oh, get we you can more medication. We can give you pink eye over the, over the counter. It was just like... This is not like the stuff that's going to kill you. You can't overdose on pink eye medication, everyone. Like, this is, uh, I, it's just a lack of common sense. And also, it's, of course, when you come into stakeholder groups, it's it's about competing jurisdiction and power, right? That then overwhelms just common sense and 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 basic decent decision making, right? I like that we have this multi multi jurisdictions because it does allow us to kvetch about what they're doing good on the other side of the border and. Uh, in in other provinces, like 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 Danielle Smith just secured five million uh, units of of Tylenol. Um, I don't understand. From, like, was it from? I think it was. Where, where did she secure? It, it was Turkey. It was Turkey. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. All right. So did they just like slap a French Canadian label on it, or? I don't think they're even bothered. They gonna, don't bother to do that. Well, that makes I think sense. I think they're like fuck it. Like I don't <laughs> think I don't, I don't think a, a parent in Chicoutimi. You know, if they're they're out in the middle of the night, I don't think that they care whether whether there's French also, on like, the box. I'm like, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry. Also, do, do you do you really want me to believe that like a French parent in the the depths of uh, uh, Quebec would rather have, you know, 
no Tylenol or English Tylenol. Yeah, exactly. like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just don't, this is, this is where, where, you know, people get so hidebound that they, they, that they lock, they lack, I don't know, they just, they're just not thinking through the problem logically anymore, right? Like you could easily just hand out Tylenol with, and then print out French instructions and put it next to the Tylenol with the French instruct, like, this, this requires a laser printer. Like it's, it, this does not, we don't need to overthink this. And so one of the things that we've been grappling with beyond the, the French label issue is, um, so when, when you go and you buy children's Tylenol in the United States, the measurement's actually different. There's no infant formulation the way that we know it in, in Canada, which is 80 milliliters per, I don't know, ounce or something like that. It's a different, uh, it's a different like, formula basically and so you have to do you have to be able to do some math I can, I can literally go downstairs and look at what see what see what the american tylenol has so i don't know who told you this but it's wrong this is literally american tylenol no bilingual all english and the dosages are as such if you are under 24 uh, pounds or under two years old ask a doctor mm -hmm. 24 to 35 pounds age two to three five milliliters 36 to 47, uh, age four to five, 7.5 milliliters. And you open it up and it's got the dosage in the cap. Yeah. So five milliliter, two milliliter dosage. So like literally any idiot should be able to follow this. It's not like metric. Totally. Problems. But you just need to be given, if you have a child under two, you need to be told oh, yeah. if you, by yeah, a pharmacist. If you have a child yeah. under two, you need, but uh, again, this is sort of stuff that you can find pretty easily online. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, like parents have had to kind of figure it out. Uh, I've been not... asked to become like supply chain experts. Yeah. Yes. And to also become like experts at cutting up pills and crushing them. And, you know, like, uh, and I've just laughed when people have said like, oh, you know, you can just crush up half of a Tylenol and put it in some oh, apple yeah, sauce. Oh, yeah. Let me That's tell what, you. Like our grandparents used to do. It's like, okay, you want to come give my 18 month old that in the middle of the night? Like, good luck. <laughs> and if you have a six month old who isn't eating food yet. Yeah. Like. That is not an option. Yeah. So anyway, it's 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 a bit of a mess. And I just want to say, like, it's to me, this was just the icing on the cake because I don't know about you, but all I can tell is that every parent with a young child is fucking insane right now. Yeah. Like they've and I, this is one of those things where also because the political class is so disconnected from this particular subgroup because the subgroup is uh, in a bit of an insular bubble where they're just trying to get through every single day. So they're, they're there's a big bit of a wall there. I have watched more of my friends with young parents radicalize in the last mm. three years than I have ever seen before. Like, like they're nuts. After three years of COVID, they're nuts. We're all nuts now. Um, they've either gone full on COVID terror loopy. I'm going to, you know, put three masks on while I play with my kid outside, or they've gone politically radical. Like we're talking I know friends who used to vote NDP and are now like Roman Barber is the best. Like it's, it's, I've never seen political shifts. Like I have seen among my demographic cohort as I've seen in the yeah. last three years, it's, it's been radical to watch. And I think that Pierre Polyev is just starting to tap that vein. Like he kind of gets it and the liberals are totally oblivious to what's happened. Um, suburban moms, man, they're not normal anymore. <laughs> They're, they're not, they're not okay. And well, how, not, how, yeah, the moms are not the moms okay. Are not okay. We, we've long talked about like the suburban soccer mom yeah. and like, you know, and, and liberals keep thinking they can scare her with guns. And you know what, she's not, 
She's not scared of guns no, anymore. She's now, scared now of not being able to get Tylenol. Now she wants to fucking buy the guns. Okay. Liberal yes. liberal <laughs> soccer mom has or has gone from like, I don't like guns on my street to like, fuck it. I'm getting a shotgun. Well, like that's what's standing, happened. If you're if you're standing in a bread line for formula, because it was it was formula before it was, oh, yeah. uh, it yeah. was still Tylenol. Still formula. Yeah. Like if Costco you're used to can't even get formula. <laughs> if Costco, one of the biggest buyers on earth, cannot get formula, like my- we're fucked. If my kids, if, the, if my kids were still on formula, I would be like, I'm sorry, there'd be bodies. Yeah. There'd be oh, bodies. hundred percent. And this is like, I, I joked earlier that like, I want to blockade Ottawa, but I like the reason why there is no convoy of parents is because we're too fucking tired and busy. And sick. Like, yeah, that's it, right? Sick. Otherwise there would absolutely be uh, pitchforks and, and like us holding flames demanding our, our kids have access to like basic medication and and baby formula and also can um, I suggest just, like, like to what extent that we have absolutely shuffled the um downsides of dealing with covid onto children mm. the degree to which the degree to which we have absolutely fucked a generation of children in order to preserve the lives of 80 year olds you know and, and and the elderly and i'm sorry i don't mean to sound crass because I, I of course love and respect the elderly i have many people in life who are elderly but we have absolutely, in order to preserve the lives of boomers and people over the ages of 60 to 90, we have absolutely let every little bit of shit roll downstream. And it's the children who are suffering from lack of schooling to like the COVID restrictions they had, some of those guys had to deal with in school were insane. The mental health issues and now the, um, the, the uh, respiratory issues. And the people who are saying, oh, well, we just need to bring masks back in school and social distancing back. We have tortured our kids for the last three years with this shit for a disease that isn't going to damage them. And the end result of that is now we have um, a a host of respiratory illnesses that are putting them in hospitals in record numbers. And your answer to that problem is to remask them and to redistance them. Nobody wants to do that. As much as I'm ready to take my own kids out of school because I'm tired of being sick, and as much as it breaks my heart to my kids be, see my kids be sick, I'm perfectly capable of recognizing that the reason why they are this sick is because of what we've done to them over the last three years. So, like, there's no good answers now. You either rip the bandage off now and you deal with this shitty winter, or what you do is you try to, like, remask them and prolong the damage for another year. Neither of these are good options. But the end result is, like, once again, you see, a, a like, a Canada as a society and as a country absolutely willing to willing and and happy to fuck over the youngest generation in order to preserve the eldest well that's the same that's the same political formula that gave us the housing situation that gave us consumer consumer price index index, inflation the debt problems the 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 debt issues we're accruing it's one thing after the next and it's like i'm sorry but we are once again we're we're this this country is a vampiric gerontocracy this country is absolutely willing to suck every last good thing out of a younger generation in order to preserve the stability and welfare of the old. And like, like COVID was that. Is it just because they, is it just because they vote and organize with greater efficiency than. That's it. Like, I just don't think there's anything more to it. It's just like, like the needs of people sort of under the age of 35 don't matter. And don't, don't, nobody cares. There's no AARP for us. Like there's no for, for, for hardworking group. for hardworking well, also like, Ontario moms, hardworking well, Alberta no, moms. Even, it's, it's, no. even, Jen, we should change. start it. We should, but you know, it's even it's even climate change policies. It's even like yeah, you know, it's 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 everything. Everything in this society is seen, and I don't even think it's intentional or malicious. It's just like everything is seen through the lens 
of a 65 year old voter. That's it. Right. You know, and because they're guaranteed to vote and show up. political parties, well, yeah, they're going to show exactly. up. And the horizon is only and ever four years out. Four years. You know, and like this is where you get into some interesting arguments about like maybe younger people, like I'm talking like 16 up, should have more political power than people who are on their way out. Like, you know what I mean? And maybe that would get politicians to start looking in t- longer time frames. I don't, I don't know what the answer to all that is, but I can tell you that as it is right now, the political situation hinges on the 35s and you know if you're over 35 versus younger 35 and i think it's totally unsustainable i think it's ready to just absolutely blow up i think people well, those are, are so those pissed. those Still 35 pissed. year olds are the that, that that's a major cohort that that brought uh polyev to the leadership of the cbc yeah. and i think that you're going to start and you're starting to see this among the demographic splits right now where basically the liberals are now the party of nostalgia. They're the party of 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 old expo. Yeah, party of expo. They're the party of older boomers who are trying to uh, assure themselves that some vision of Canada that existed in the '90s is going to carry on, and that's going to be part of their legacy. But like, you go you go online and you look at who's like most enthusiastic uh, Trudeau supporter on Facebook, and it's like a middle aged woman with sparkles around her profile. Like it's 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 an older nostalgic demographic and then three needle emojis there you go a ukrainian flag a sunflower yeah, exactly and then you go down and you look down the list of who's supporting both parties and like the younger are split are splitting between uh the ndp and the conservatives and the conservatives are to to be credit peers speaking to the issues and peers speaking to the genuine frustration and anger there is about you know living in a in a society that is facing uh, long-term and systemic decline where nothing can get built, nothing gets done, nobody gives a shit about young people. And uh, everything is broken. Everything's broken. And I think the NDP kind of speaks to a, a, a kind of youthful idealism, a, a sense that like probably also equally a revolutionary one, but one that goes a little bit more towards the answer is more for more socialistic policies, more um, distribution of wealth to the younger kind of generations and blah, 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 blah. So both of them are essentially speaking to the same demographic. They're just proposing different solutions. And I don't know, man. I I, I think that the I I think that when the liberals finally do go down, and this is my prediction, and you can hold it against me if you want, when they finally do go down, and eventually they will, like already we know that they're clinging to power by a by a tenth of a percent in a, a small number of 905 writings. So when that collapses, and it will, they're going to collapse dramatically. I do think that we are going to look back on history and see true Justin Trudeau's era as the dead cat bounce of the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we I, I do suspect we are going to be going into a two-party system. Um, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I couldn't agree more about a two-party system. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely where we are headed. I can't. Like, I, I agree that the young people are split between left and right. There are very few young centrists. Um, and whether the Liberal Party is a centrist party anymore is a different different show. But I don't know any young people who are parents who have borne witness to all of these failures, all all of these breakdowns, and say. Yes, the solution to this is more pra- programmatic solutions. Right. Is yes, more policy. Is yes, more because they've been more applied, bureaucratic futzing. Because they've been applied so well and they've been so successful. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, like, so like, like, look at me. If yeah. I, I'm 30, 39. I'm going to be thirty nine this year. So what, like, what's my life been? Okay, so I came into journalism in I graduated high school in like what two thousand two. 
So right as September 11th happens and the beginning of the yeah. September 11th era happens, so there's 20 years of basically, I go from my childhood being peaceful and, you know, relatively um, prosperous 90s. I become an adult in the period of extended Middle Eastern warfare and, and issues. I graduate university sort of just before 2008 and the, uh, and, uh, and the collapse of the entire market. So Firstly, my faith in governments to be able to be honest and straightforward about risks was eliminated after September 11th. My faith in the financial system was gone after 2008. And then what have I been witness to since 2008 right through my adulthood as I've you know raised kids? It hasn't it hasn't been the 90s. It hasn't been like nothing but prosperity. My quality of life's been very very good up until now because we've had access to cheap imported um, goods mostly from China, right? But you know, I'm one of the very few people um, of my cohort who managed to make a career in journalism. Most didn't. Um, most of my peers have been struggling through various careers. The idea that there's a, something that my my mom is still, oh my god, my mom whines about the fact that she's not probably not she, she's paid into CPP all of her life, but she's probably not going to get that pension money back. And I keep on wanting to kill her because I'm like. Mom, you have a defined benefit pension from a job you worked for 33 fucking years. Like, yeah, those don't exist anymore. Those don't exist anymore. And by the way, CPP will also be gone for me. Like, the the, the planet, the work planet, she she doesn't understand why young people have no loyalty nowadays. It's like, because they they don't give loyalty to us. There is no such thing as a a long-term career job. There are no defined benefit pensions. I've now been basically freelance for almost 10 years. All of my finances are now done privately and independently. And um, yeah, so that's been the reality of the world. So what faith do I have in programs that more often than not have failed or failed to live up to their their, their, uh, uh, expectations? The healthcare system that I've come to rely on seems to be going to shit shambles shambles i can't trust any of these governments to say what to do what they're going to say they're going to do and i've yet to see any major infrastructure be built in my lifetime it just yeah no no major projects no major projects no new great mines or pipelines or anything like we can't build shit in this country i have have literally never seen this country build anything i've never seen the war i've seen has been afghanistan in which i saw people my age uh get blown up and people, I've had friends blown, blown up and die in that war. And then, oh, w- w- what happened out to that? Oh, you, everybody just gave up and let the Taliban take control again. So, like, we haven't won a war. Our military is falling apart, falling to shit. What, what the fuck are we here for? And, and some yeah. of those same guys came back and are now homeless. And are now homeless and treated like shit or, or being told that they should yep. be considering maids. They should, they like, should kill themselves. You know what I mean? And yeah. you're sitting here and you're going, like, why, why do we exist? Why is Canada? Yeah. What? Why? It's, or, or, yeah. or on the left, you have basically a, a, a whole extended narrative that's undermining all of our foundational myths without any thought to considering like, well, what happens when those foundational myths are gone? Like, what holds us together as a country if we don't have if, if our concept of Canada is limited to like maple syrup, I guess. Like, it's just. Yeah. I- we keep trying to do too many things, I think. I, it- I call it like the Tim Hortons phenomenon yeah. where Tim Hortons used to just do like bagels, donuts, and coffee. Yeah. 
And then they started making like fucking chicken sandwiches and potato wedges and trying to compete with everybody, be everything. And now their coffee's garbage and like everything sucks. The CBC had the same problem. The CBC had a massive (laughs) mandate creep. One of the problems with the CBC and why the CBC no longer holds the same degree of credibility as it once did is because they tried to be everything to everybody. They they now have CBC Entertains and CBC Gem and CBC Music and blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, their actual news programming um well there's a whole bunch of things happening in cbc but like <laughs> there's a lot of cultural problems at the cbc now where where actually i think that if if you had a conservative government call for a mandate review of the cbc you'd have broad broad support even among people on the left like i yeah. you know like and this is cbc's who is just supposedly some kind of unifying institution of the country again what what, what the fuck is canada why why are we here what is the purpose of any of this what are we doing like nobody, I have, nobody can answer these questions. And like, I have ten million things to say. To sorry, I'm rambling. This. I'm now just <laughs> rambling. I'm on a full on fucking Gerson rant. We need to do a round two, um, in the evening with a with 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 wine because that's where. Oh, yeah. the, that's I didn't where even need wine. I just needed some azithromycin and some pneumonia. <laughs> yes. That's all that was required. Excuse me, I'm gonna cough. I think I'm... you need <laughs> need to name this podcast. The moms are mad. Moms, and are that's I love it. That's basically what this is, is 45 minutes of us. This is great. <laughs> yelling about um, all the things that suck. Melanie, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I hope uh, from one parent to, uh, to to two others, I hope that uh, this uh, this whole crisis ends before it uh, uh, before too long. But I'm not hopeful. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zeus Eden, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.